All right, why don't we go ahead and get started. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that you've given us to be together here, and I pray that you bless us as we study uh, the Westminster Confession, help us to understand uh, the scriptures better uh, because of the, the great work uh, that your church has done through the centuries, and we thank you for your faithfulness to your church, and we pray that we would have a better understanding of these things and that we would live in the light of them, and I pray your blessing upon our discussion, our conversation, and uh, thank you that we can be together on this Sabbath day, and we pray your blessing upon our worship, and pray that we glorify Christ um, in, in whom we trust. In his name we pray, amen. All right, well, let's look at um, chapter, let's see, where are we? I think we're on uh, chapter, um, yeah, we're on chapter five of Providence. So we're on page 22. Page 22. Hey, Emma. Page 22. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we, we started Providence. Always remember God, remember God is a, is a trinity of persons, and God has a plan. God didn't just create the world and step back and see what, what's going to happen. He had a plan that he's executing, and there's two ways that he executes that plan in the works of <clears throat> creation and then Providence. So God creates the world, and then he, he governs the world by his power and sustains it. So we talked about creation last time, and now we're talking about God's works of, of providence. Okay, so let's look at point number four under providence on page 22. The almighty power and unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as have joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. I know that's kind of a mouthful. That's one of the more complicated paragraphs. But really what that's saying is that when God created the universe, when God created the world and created humanity, uh, it was part of God's plan that Adam would rebel, that Adam would sin uh, against God. And God is not the one who actually commits that sin. Adam does. And yet, it was part of God's plan to glorify himself. Okay? And, and I know it's, it's hard. I've struggled with that. Why would God do that? Uh, why would God... Uh, create a world and then actually decree plan that man would fall into sin and that all this evil and all this suffering uh, would happen. And we know that God did that to be able to send his son into the world to redeem uh, humanity so that he would be glorified for having saved his church. And so the whole created order is really the, the realm in which God glorifies himself and he glorifies not just his love and his mercy, but he glorifies his justice and his wrath as well. And I used to think, well, if I was God, I would just have created a world where everything is perfect and everyone's happy and nothing bad ever happens. And I have to <clears throat> remind myself I'm not God. Okay, And the highest good that there is is that God is glorified, that God glorifies all of his attributes. That's a hard thing to really come to terms with, but even in my own life, there have been things that have happened that have been extremely hard and very painful and I've thought, had to come to terms and come to grips with the fact that God is allowed to glorify himself however he wants to. 
uh, in my life. Uh, remember Job? Job was a, a man who uh, had great wealth. Um, he was married. He had 10 children. And God took all that away from him. Remember his response when he loses everything? What he does? In Job chapter 1, it says he f- fell to the ground in worship. And he says one of the most amazing things a human being's ever said. He said, God has given and God has taken away. I came, I came into this world with nothing. I shall leave with nothing. God gives and he takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so our obligation is always to worship God no matter what. And so God will show you throughout your Christian life that you'll, you'll have seasons where there's great peace and there's, there's great blessing and everything's wonderful. And then you'll go through times that are extremely hard and you'll go through devastating losses and you'll go through things that just leave you feeling as low as can be. And the thing that the book of Job really shows us is that we're obligated to worship and praise and love and serve God no matter how things are going in our lives, okay? Because he's always worthy of that worship um, because he can require of us whatever he is pleased to require of us and God requires us to, to love and worship him. And it's easy to do that when everything's going great, um, but it's, it's a lot harder, it's more challenging to do it when things don't go well for you and things you pray for aren't given to you um, you lose loved ones, you experience betrayal, you experience things that are very, very painful and hard. But that's the thing that we have to learn from this. God has a plan in all of it. Nothing, nothing takes place that's just arbitrary, that God didn't know was going to happen. Uh, there's a purpose behind it. And sometimes, I mean, can't, I would ask all of you, can't you look back and see things that you've suffered and you can see there's good things that came out of it? You know, one of the things I tell people all the time, and I, I've noticed... In my life, when things have gone really well, I haven't grown as much spiritually because I haven't been forced to trust God as much during those times. But in the times of loss and sorrow and heartache, you grow a lot more. And as I look back now, you know, being close to 50 years old now, I look back and and think, you know, if God had just given me everything I ever asked him to, if he took away every trial that I asked him to take away, um, I would not have grown in the ways that I have grown. And so God has a purpose for our suffering, is a purpose for what we experience uh, that's hard to make us more like Christ. Because did anyone ever suffer more than he did? I always think, just going through the Gospel of Luke, you know, today we get to talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead in Luke 24. He experienced pretty much every kind of suffering you can experience. Okay, I mean, the guy was, was tortured to death. He experienced betrayal from his closest friends. Uh, he experienced mockery. He was lied about. Uh, he was mistreated in every conceivable way. And if, if we're going to be like him, it makes sense that we're going to have to suffer too um, to be more like him. So, so I, I know that that doesn't make suffering any less painful, but to know that God has a purpose in all of it is very helpful to, to see that he has a purpose in it. All right, we're on page 23 there, Joseph. Point number five, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God. Okay, this, this paragraph here is one of the best in the whole confession because it's so... It's just so pastorally helpful. Listen, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. Isn't that a little, a little frightening? God will leave his children to be tempted sometimes to show them how dark their hearts really are, 
to show them what they're really capable of. I always think of David. What did David do that was really bad? He had Uriah killed. Mm-hmm. Murder. What else? And with the, the sin with Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Adultery. Mm-hmm. Took, killed, killed her husband and then had an affair with her. And Uriah wasn't the only guy that was killed when he uh, sent those guys forward to that wall. A bunch of other guys got killed too. <coughs> so multiple homicides, <coughs> adultery. And David, David is known as what? How does God identify him? A man after my own heart. You're thinking, he was capable of doing all of that. And I think David would not have believed it. If you told him a couple months before that, two months from now, here's what you're going to do. I think he would have been like, God forbid I could ever do anything like that. Well, sometimes God lifts his hand of restraint upon us and will show us, here's what's really in your heart and here's how evil you're capable of being. And that's why we have to keep our guard up. We have to, to be aware that given the right circumstances, we can commit very serious sins. And we need to always be on guard against that kind of thing. But God does that for his own praiseworthy purposes. You know, there have been times that there are sins, you know, from my very distant past now that I thought were gone. Like I've defeated them all. And then there, there, you'll go through a season of temptation with certain things that come back up again and they rear their head again. And you're like, how, where did that come from? Like, how, how is that still in my heart or mind at times? And you think, God, I get it. I see what I'm capable of being. I see how sinful I can be. And thank God for the gospel. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for uh, his grace that, that he can forgive us uh, for those things. Okay, let's continue on here. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. Okay, so everything that comes to pass, everything that God has planned and decreed um, is to glorify him and also to, to show us how much we need him. Because that's one of the things we always have to, to really guard against is the idea that, yeah, I'm fine. I don't need to pray today. I'm good. Yeah, I, I slept. I overslept. I don't need to spend time on my knees in prayer. I don't need to ask God to help me with temptation. I'm not experiencing any temptations lately. I've got my sin under control and all is well with me in the world. Uh, God will show you, no, it's not. And you do need to depend on me every single day uh, to walk the straight and narrow path. And you do need me uh, to help you with everything you do in life so that you glorify my name. So I would encourage you, when you're feeling the strongest, you should probably be praying the hardest. Okay? Like seriously. Because God will show you. If you start to think that you're self-sufficient and that you've got things under control, he'll show you that you don't. And that you really do need him. Okay, uh, yes, ma'am. question with respect to that, because sometimes I see myself as I grow in my understanding of God's word. Mm-hmm. I feel like I see more the depravity of my own heart. Would you say that would be typical? Yes. Of most people that mm-hmm. grow in their maturity with the Lord, that they see how depraved their heart is. Yep. And that's one thing, that's why I love church history and I love Christian biographies and reading about people that have gone before us. They were all like that. As people grow closer to God, they, their opinion of themselves and their satisfaction with how well they're doing gets lower and lower and lower. It's like the closer you get to the light, uh, the more it expose all, exposes all the darkness and all the, the flaws. Like Augustine, like some of the greatest churchmen and theologians and some of the godliest people I've ever heard of, uh, have described themselves as like some of the most wicked, evil people ever. Like there's a guy named John Brown of Haddington is a guy that uh, I recently uh, was introduced to. And he wrote a whole systematic theology. This young guy taught himself Greek as a teenager. 
by, he bought an English Bible and a Greek New Testament, and he wrote out his own dictionary, his own grammar, and this guy was just unbelievable. One of the godliest men I've ever heard of. And some of the last things he wrote before he died are like, he said, I have looked at myself and the way I've conducted my life as an almost constant war against righteousness and against God. And I'm so thankful for his grace and mercy. And you think, really? He, he really thought he was that bad? Yeah, he did. He really did. But the closer you get to God, the more your opinion of yourself, yourself should decrease. Mm-hmm. Because you see the holiness and the greatness and the grandeur of God. And you think, how can he have anything to do with me? Well, it's because we're, we're hidden in Christ and we're clothed in his righteousness. That, yeah. That's how he loves us. So, but yeah, so don't worry about it. Be, be, feeling more dissatisfied with yourself is just normal. Yeah. It's the person who, who is more and more um, excited about how godly they are. That's the person I, I would worry about a little bit. Yeah, I'm doing great. I don't sin anymore or whatever. You don't see things the way they are then. Okay, verse or point number six. As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, doth blind and harden. From them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. Who's the quintessential example here of someone who hardened his own heart? Pharaoh. Okay. Think, think about that Egyptian Pharaoh. Think about some of the things that he saw with his own eyes. What, what did he see? Well, I mean, the ten plagues. Plagues? Um, before the plagues started, when Moses first went to him, mm-hmm. and he did the things with the, the staff. Mm-hmm. That's right. And he had he had magicians and stuff. And I remember when I was preaching through Exodus years ago, I always wondered, did they actually, were they able to duplicate some of those miracles? And studying the passages and reading a bunch of commentaries, I don't think they did. I think that they were, they were tricks. They had a, a staff and they had a snake up their sleeve or something like that. But Moses was doing real miracles in front of this Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh watches all this stuff. And it has no effect on him. He watches miracle after miracle after miracle, and his heart is just as hard as, as it could possibly be. But there's one thing that happens after the third plague. Remember the third plague? The first plague is all the water turns to blood. The second plague is frogs. Frogs all over the whole land of Egypt. The third one was lice. And you think, what is, why would that be such a, such a terrible plague? Pharaoh's magicians come to Pharaoh after that one. You remember what they say to him? What do they say to him? They say, this is the finger of God. What, what they recognized, this guy Moses, whoever he is, his God is the real God. Because what he's doing is miraculous. Even they told Pharaoh, you're dealing with like, yeah, we have all of our statues and our pyramids and we've got all these wall inscriptions and idols and stuff. But those are, those are all fake, phony. Those are just pieces of, of stone. Moses' God is the real God. And Pharaoh... You need to let the people go. Remember, they, even his own advisors started telling him, you got to let the people go because this God is going to destroy this whole country. Okay, And yet, his heart is just as hard as it can be. So in God's providence, sometimes he gives people over to their sin in such a way that nothing, um, 
means that he uses to soften the hearts of others that have no effect on them. Okay. And the thing to remember about that is that God is under no obligation to soften anybody's heart. You know, and if left to ourselves, we would all have hard hearts and we would, we would not have any interest in the things of God and we would just go about our, our business and pretend that God's not there. We, we wouldn't care. Okay? So that's just another way that God expresses his providence. God is totally sovereign over uh, human beings in that way. Okay, point seven. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. Okay, so in God's providence, we know there will always be a Christian church in the world. There will always be worshipers of God, and there will always be a, a church, no matter what. The church cannot ever disappear from the earth. Okay, y'all ever heard of Mormonism? Anyone here ever, ever talked to Mormon missionaries? I know you have before, and you know people. Okay, what, what, is, what is one of the fundamental um, premises of the Mormon religion? What do they think? Well, they... Joseph Smith had the vision that there was no true church, and they are the true church. Right. Also, don't the Jehovah's Witnesses have the same? They all say it. They all say the same thing. Yeah, that we're the only true visible organization, the true church on earth. But Joseph Smith said, yeah, he, he met God the Father and Jesus Christ in the woods, and God the Father and Jesus Christ told him that he should not join any church because they're all wrong. And that, as a matter of fact, the true church disappeared off the earth um, until 1820, when Joseph Smith restored it to the earth. Okay, now the fundamental premise of that, what did Jesus say? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. There will always be a church on the earth that will never disappear. Okay, and that's another, that's a promise that God makes to us. So, that's an important thing. All right, chapter 6. This is a key one. This is a key chapter because we need to know what sin, what sin is and what it did to us in order to understand the gospel. Is, doesn't it make sense? If you don't understand what sin is, you're not going to understand the solution to that in Christ, right? All right, point one. Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Okay, so remember, there's a lot that we could look at there in Genesis uh, chapter 3 about the temptation. Um, remember, uh, Eve sees that the, the fruit was uh, good for food and it was desirable to make one wise. And so all those temptations came to her and she chose to go ahead and, and eat. And we also know who was standing there with her when this was going on. Adam's right there. And what does he say? Nothing. Nothing. He just stood there. While, while this conversation is going on, what should he have done? He should have grabbed the snake by the tail and smashed its head in the ground and threw its dead body out of the garden. Okay, that's what he should have done. But instead, he just stands there and doesn't say a word. And men have been like that ever since. We're the strong, silent types. We don't want to lead. We don't want to stand up and say, all right, we're going to do devotions as a family. We're going to read the Bible as a family. And we're going to worship God. And I'm going to take the initiative and be a leader. Men have been abdicating that role ever since then and failing to lead. And we, we can't do that. We have to lead. We have to be a, a, someone that has something to say. Yeah, think of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God commands all the households of Israel, you've got to teach these things to your children. It says in Deuteronomy 6, to the, to the men, to the heads of households, you shall speak of these things 
when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So we can't be the strong, silent type. You got to talk. You have to have something to say about God and, and his truth. And that means you have to be a student of God's word. You got to be a Bible reader. You have to have something to say. You should be able to read a passage of scripture and explain it to people. Okay. At that uh, such an iconic moment in world history when Adam and Eve are standing there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Satan is talking to them, trying to get her to, to give in. And it just says that she took from the tree and ate and gave to her husband and he ate. And that was it. That was when the lights went out and the whole human race plunges into sin. That's why everyone in this room is going to die. All of us die because of that too. Okay. All right. Point number two. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Okay. So think about this. I've heard of R.C. Sproul explained this really well in one of his teaching series once. He said, okay, he draws a big circle on the chalkboard. Say, now some people think, here's what, here's our, all the parts, this is, the circle is the human being. Here's, this is a, a human being. And sin did this, and he colors the whole thing in, and then he erases a little part in the middle. There's one part of us that wasn't affected by the fall, and that's our, our free will. And that, that's the part that we can use to convert ourselves and save ourselves. He says, scripture teaches that the whole thing was, the, was affected by sin. Okay, the, there is no part of us as human beings that was not impacted by the fall. And that's what, you guys are familiar with the acronym TULIP? What does the T stand for? Total depravity. Because the Arminians were saying, no, 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 man, man is, yeah, he was wounded, he, he was hurt by the fall, but he's not, he's not totally wounded and hurt by the fall. And the Reformed churches in the Netherlands said, no, the scriptures teach that man is dead in sin. And that we're not able to convert ourselves. We're not able to believe the gospel. We're not able to do this. Not able to please God. Okay, so that's what the fall did. That's a very, very important point. I remember many years ago really struggling with this issue. And I got a hold of um, Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology. And he has a section in there called Seven Effects of the Fall. And he goes through just dozens of passages of scripture. And I remember looking every one of them up and reading through, like John six forty four, and Jesus said, no one is able to come to me. And Raymond just points out, now notice, it's not that man is just, has been hurt a little or is sick. Man cannot do what God asks him any, anymore. We're not able to do it. We can't come to Christ. First Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man is not able to understand the things of the spirit. And he just keeps pointing out, notice it's not saying that he just won't do it. It's saying that man can't do it. He's not able. And I remember thinking of illustrations like, yeah, you know, like jumping over this house that I'm sitting in right now. No matter how much I ever trained myself from a standing position, I could never jump over this house. I'm not able to do that. Okay. It's the same thing with saving ourselves. Man's not able. We, we're disabled uh, from doing that. Okay. So it's very, very important to know that's one of the effects of, of the fall is not just that we have a bent towards sin. It's that we're not able to liberate ourselves from that slavery to sin. Okay. Point three. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, meaning legally charged to us. And the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Why, why do you think they put that in there? What Ordinary generation. What do they mean by that? Everyone that's a descendant from Adam and Eve by ordinary generation is going to be, they're going to have the guilt of Adam's sin and they're going to have a corrupted nature. 
they, they said that because there's one person that was born into the world and they weren't from ordinary generation. Jesus. Yeah. If he had had a human father, what would he have been like? Just like us. He would have had a sinful nature just like we do. That's why the virgin birth is so important. Jesus can't have a human father if he's going to start out sinless the way the first Adam did. Does that make sense? I always emphasize that point. People you know, will be like, well, is the virgin birth, is that really that important? Is that that big of a deal? Yes, it's a huge deal. If Jesus had had a dad, just like I do, then he would have been a sinner. Okay? And so there's, in the whole history of the world, there have only been three people um, who at any time were sinlessly perfect. Adam and Eve for a while, and then Christ. That's it. The rest of us are born into the world with a sinful nature. Um, we, we rebel against God by nature. Uh, apart from his grace. So that's a real important point. Okay, so everyone that's a descendant of Adam and Eve by ordinary generation gets what Adam uh, earned for them. Point four, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Okay, so let's go to the next page. Point number five. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. So if you're a Christian, did you notice you still have a tendency to sin? You, you still sin a lot? And I remember like when I, when I first came to Christ thinking, well, that every, all the sin should be done away with now, right? I shouldn't be struggling so much with sin. And we still struggle with sin as, as believers. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, you guys know what the word mortified, that's an old English word, That means killed. Okay, the old version of me died with Christ, and yet there's still this rebelliousness in in my heart. Yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So I will never do anything, even as a Christian, that is not stained with some degree of sin. Okay, so even the best things I've ever done, the most self-giving, self-sacrificial things I've ever done, still have sin attached to them. Okay? And that's why our works can't save us in any way, shape, or form. That's why even our works as Christians can't enter into uh, what's going to save us. Okay, Because they're, they're always stained with sin. Okay, point six. Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. No, they, they said that because we, we tend to put grades on sin, right? Like there are certain sins that are a lot worse than others. And, and there are sins that are worse than others. But in the ultimate sense, isn't every sin worthy of eternal damnation? I've always wondered, why would God give Adam and Eve a law that seems so innocuous and like arbitrary? Like, okay, don't eat from that tree. I mean, is it really that big of a deal that... They took a piece of fruit and ate from it. Why, why would that be the source of all misery and death and suffering and war and everything that's ever happened? Remember, I asked a, a group of um, thir- third, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders that question one time. Why is that such a big deal? It was just a tree, just a piece of fruit. And one of these little kids, like a third grader, raises his hand and says, yeah, but God told them not to. I said, that's right. And if God says don't do something, and if you do it, you're going to die, then if you do it, you're going to die. So because he said it, you're not supposed to do that. And so every sin in the sight of God is very serious. Very serious. But there's a really good book. 
um, by Jerry Bridges. He actually died recently, but he was a great author. He wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Like sins that Christians, very godly Christians, will often tolerate in their lives. Like a little gossip here and there. A little discontentment here and there. And it goes down, I mean, it's one of the most convicting things. I mean, because, yeah, honestly, I've never actually thought about killing anybody. I mean, I never have thought about killing anybody. Or, or, or like, you know, robbing a bank or... Um, going on a shooting spree. I, I, th- those are big sins. But there's all these other ones that we tolerate that we're okay with. And Bridges is like, these are still sins too. And we have to fight against all of them. Because the standard is is to be holy. And n- none of us ever reach it in this life, but it's still, we shouldn't tolerate any any kind of sin in our lives. So. I was going to say, that gossip will tear down the church. That's and right. Will get you killed in the wilderness by the Lord. <laughs> It's not like too that big of a deal, but yeah, yeah. I I wonder the same. When I was young, I thought the people are thirsting to death. Of course, they're going to cry and say we need something to drink. And God gets so angry at them for complaining. And you think, wow, like why? Why is complaining such a big deal? Why is grumbling a big deal? That's right. You're chafing at His providence. Like, I don't like the way, like, God, what you plan to happen is not okay with me. And I don't like this aspect of my life. I don't like this aspect of what you've given me. It's, it, 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 could, it should have been something different. And that's wrong. That's one of the hardest, the hardest of God's commandments is uh, the commandment, the prohibition against covetousness. And I remember reading the, the shorter catechism. What is the, the commandment? You shall not covet. What is it really saying? You have to be content. Always perfectly content with everything that happens, everything about yourself. You are not allowed to complain or grumble about anything in life ever. And think. I remember reading that and, they, and thinking about Israel's history and looking at other passages of scripture going, yeah, I definitely need the righteousness of Christ to get into heaven because malcontent and fussing and complaining and whining is like a full-time job to me sometimes. And it's very hard to be content. It really is hard. In fact, there uh, I think the Puritans wrote tons of books on that. I've got a couple of them. One of them is called The Art of Contentment by, um, I think that's uh, Thomas Watson. And it's great because Paul, Paul the Apostle says in Philippians chapter 4, I had to learn how to be content. It's a skill that you get better at as life goes on. Okay? I, I have learned how to be content, says the Apostle Paul. And because it's not something that comes naturally to us because we're, we're usually discontent. We don't like this. We don't like that. I want this to change. I want that to change. And yeah, it's like you said, it's just not trusting God. Every time I complain and fuss, like one of the passages we, we made, made the kids memorize is um, Philippians 2, 15, which says, um, or, or verse 14, do all things without complaining and grumbling. So when we tell you to do your schoolwork, you're not allowed to complain or grumble, ever, for any reason. <laughs> no complaining, ever. And the, the word that's used for grumbling and complaining is the same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament for what Israel did in the wilderness. The, the word gun guzman. I love that word. It means grumbling. Gun guzman. Like, don't, you're not allowed to gun guzman in this house. So try not to complain. And just be thankful that Christ... Jesus uh, never complained about anything. And he was always content, perfectly content with everything he had. Okay, um, so that's the end of, of chapter 6. All right, chapter 7. Here's where we get to some good news. 
there's two, two primary covenants in Scripture, chapter 7, of God's covenant with man. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they, they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Okay, so that's the, the first thing. The, the only way that we can have any, any fellowship with or interaction with God is if he enters into a covenant with us. Okay, and that's what he does. So there's, there's two main covenants in Scripture, and you, you have to understand this. This is a, a, such an important part of, of biblical revelation. So point number two. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Okay, so here, think, think about this. When God enters into that covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he, he enters into that covenant of, of works or of obedience before Eve is even there. God hasn't even made Eve yet. He, he makes it with Adam and says, Of every tree of the, of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Now, implied in that is, if you don't eat of it, you will live forever. Okay, so anytime God threatens something for disobedience, the contrary promise is always implied if you obey it. Okay, so think about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So if they dishonor their father and mother, what's going to happen? Yeah, they're going to get thrown out of the land. And that's exactly what does happen with Israel. They eventually get thrown out of the land by God. So the contrary promise is always implied when God threatens something. Uh, the contrary curse is always implied if he promises something. Okay? So when he told Adam, you will surely die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he hadn't eaten from it, he would have lived forever. Okay? So that's what the covenant of works is. It's, it's based entirely on Adam's obedience. And the thing is, every human being on earth right now, are we still in that covenant of works? Yes. And that's why we need Christ. Every human being that you ever lock eyes with is in that covenant of works where God requires perfect and personal obedience from them. But none of us do it, do we? And that's why we have to have a savior. We have to have someone who enters into that covenant of works and keeps it for us. That's why Jesus is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. He's called the second Adam. So he enters into that broken covenant that we've all broken and keeps it vicariously, keeps it in our place. Okay, that's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Okay, look at point number three. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to, to believe. Okay, so the covenant of grace is Christ giving everything to us freely. Okay, and we, we don't participate um, in achieving eternal life for ourselves. It's something that Christ does entirely for us. Just like we weren't there when Adam sinned and plunged the whole human race into sin, we're not there either with Christ. He does it all for us. Okay, and that's why throughout my entire adult life and especially once I was ordained as an elder and then as a pastor it has amazed me how many ways people can get this wrong even in, in churches that you would think would always get it right people are always trying to figure out some way to get our works our obedience our something 
into the equation of what gets us into heaven, and that's absolutely fatal to the Christian faith. Okay, in fact, in closing, I want you to take your Bibles. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I just want you to see the first three verses of Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 1. Here Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Okay, so think about what that's saying. For us to get into heaven, for me, for anyone that you talk to see or talk to, or any human being in the world, to get into heaven, we have to have righteousness. Do we have righteousness? No. All we have is sin. So to get to heaven, we need the righteousness of someone else to do it for us. And who, who gives us that righteousness? Christ. Jesus. Jesus enters into the broken covenant of works. He keeps all of its commandments perfectly, and he takes its death penalty away. Remember, what did God tell Adam? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. So what does Jesus have to do? He's got to die for us, and that's what he does. And he also, by his whole life, Jesus obeys all of God's commandments perfectly. He achieves that gift of righteousness that is then put upon our account and clothes us. Now look at verse 3 again. For they, he's talking about the Jewish people, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So because they don't trust in Christ's righteousness, what are they trying to do instead? I'm sorry? Establish their own righteousness. By what? By their own works. And Paul's, you see verse 1 again? You see it? My heart's desire and prayer for, to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So what he's saying is, if a person is trusting in their own works, are they saved? No, because they're ignorant. They don't understand that they need someone else's right. They need a perfect righteousness to go to heaven. And if they don't get that, they're always going to be thinking they're good enough. They're always going to be trying to establish their own righteousness. Okay, but that's what, you see the, the covenant of works, covenant of grace. Covenant of works, you and I can't get into heaven by that. The covenant of works is useless to us because we're sinful. So Christ has got to enter into the covenant of works for us, achieve its righteousness for us, and then give that to us as a free gift. And if people don't get that, that's as basic as it gets when it comes to Christianity. If they don't get that, they'll always be trying to establish their own righteousness. And insofar as anybody does that, they're not saved. Because that righteousness that they're trying to produce by their works is not going to make it. It will not withstand the holiness of God on the day of judgment. The only righteousness that can do it is the righteousness that was achieved by Jesus Christ. And that's why, as long as you're within earshot of me, I'm going to be hammering that point as hard as I can. Because, believe me, I've seen people struggle with this, and I've, I've been with people when they're dying, and they don't really get the gospel, and they don't understand, and I've had to really labor and try to help people. You've got, you cannot trust in your works. You've got to trust in, your, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, just, I'll share one, one, of the, one of the first really hard pastoral situations I ever dealt with when I was um, in my early 30s. There was a family at church, I had a family friend, and she had never been to church, never gone to church before. And they started inviting her because she was dying of emphysema. She was a heavy smoker and her lungs were, were giving out on her. 
came to church two or three times. I was able to meet her. Went to see her at the hospital three or four times. And the last time I went to see her, and every time I was there, I shared the gospel with her. I shared exactly what I just said to you. I shared with her. And the last time I went, she, she was in the process of dying. And she, but she was still all there mentally. And it was really awful. I walked into this room, and she's on this, this machine that's helping her breathe, and she couldn't even talk. And she just had this look of, of fright in her eyes, and um, she was mouthing the words, pray for me, pray for me. So I took her by the hand and prayed for her and shared the gospel with her in that prayer again. And, and then she looked at, looked at me and I said, do you, I said, do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? That it's not your works, it's not how good you've tried to be, that it's Christ alone, it's Jesus, and only Jesus that can save you, only his righteousness. And she just, she nodded her head and had tears coming down her eyes, and I was kind of a mess, too. I said, you really believe that? If you trust only in him, then go, go with Jesus. And so, prayed for her again, got up and left the room. I had to go take a walk, I was just kind of distraught just from seeing that. Walk, like walked around the hospital for a little while and came back. When I came back to the room, she was gone. And I was like, Where, where'd she go? And the nurse, like, she died right after you left. As soon as you left the room, she died. And they took her down to the morgue. And I just stood there like, wow. And I told her family that were believers. I said, I, I, do, I do think she, she believed. I do think she trusted in Christ. She said she did um, before she died and I shared that story at her funeral her family wanted me to preach at her funeral and there were other unbelievers there but what a great opportunity to tell them it's Christ's righteousness alone that can save you. you you have to get out of the savior business and you've got to trust only in him that what he did is going to save you and the good works that we do the life of godliness that we try to live that's us showing our thanksgiving to God that's us showing that we're thankful we're not trying to earn a place for ourselves in heaven. And as Paul said there, if you are doing that, you're ignorant of the gospel. Okay? So this covenant of works, covenant of grace stuff is very, very important that, that we get. All right, you guys have any questions? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for revealing these things clearly to us in your holy word. And I pray that you bless us now as we worship you. And pray that our singing would be pleasing in your sight, that our attentiveness to your word would, would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray that you would bl- help us to bless and sanctify this Sabbath day and to give it over to you for your worship in Christ's name. Amen.